Hello and welcome to The Artist Appeals. I'm your host, Erin Sparler, and in this podcast, we talk about the business of art. We talk about how to make money with your art. In fact, this podcast is focused on the seven steps to make money with your art. We talk about art, product, presentation, educating your audience with story, amplifying through automation, licensing and contract terms, simplified in plain English, and success. How do you measure it? How do you find it? In an attempt to put all this in context, we have been interviewing everybody we can get our hands on from photographers to designers, quilt makers, collectors, CEOs of big craft companies, editors-in-chiefs of famous art magazines, um, fine artists, everybody and anybody. We talk to them all seeking the secret sauce to how to make a living with your art. I'm glad you've decided to join me and I hope you'll enjoy today's episode. So welcome, welcome to The Artist Appeals. In this episode of The Artist Appeals, we're going to speak with a gentleman who is a photographer. His mother studied with Jerry Ulsman, and then he also studied with Jerry Ulsman. He grew up in this amazing house that had thousands of artwork surrounding him, photographs from some of the biggies um, in modern photography. He went on to study neuroscience and then went on to work in the film industry. He's worked um, with Lucasfilms, Netflix, Adobe. Um, he has worked on the CBS miniseries Lonesome Dove as well as Paul McCartney's concert film Get Back and he's been the author of several books and lots of essays primarily on filmmaking but now he's turned his eye to photography and on to educating and helping people learn about photography and he's taken a very unique approach one that is near and dear to my heart and that is this idea of photography any art form really as a form of Zen as a form of meditation yes that's right he's presenting photography as a way to get calm he has a fantastic website that you can explore, Neo Modern, and he also has a podcast as well. And he teaches workshops in Santa Fe. He shares all this and more in today's interview. I'm very excited to share with you a fantastic interview and talk with the photographer, Michael Rubin. Hello, hello, Ruben. How are you? I'm good, Aaron. How are you doing? Fantastic. I'm excited to have you on the program. Now, you have your own podcast. I do. Hold on. Is this audio working? Are we, uh, are we actually, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great. Oh, I'm just making sure. You can never tell with technology <laughs> today. And it's the end of 2020, oh, so anything could happen. There was an earthquake in San Francisco this morning. I think that's par <sighs> for our year, you know? Now, are you in San Francisco? Hmm. I'm not anymore. I just left a few months ago and I'm on my way to Santa Fe, New Mexico, but I'm in my own uh, house in Santa Cruz, which is just down coast from San Francisco. It's great. I love being here. Hold up cool. with my children. Yeah, it's been good. 
I went to grad school in San Francisco. Did you? Where were you? Yeah, yeah. I went to the Academy of Art College, which oh. is now the Academy of Art University. Yeah, and I lived in the Fog District out by um, uh, West Portal. Sure, sure. It's, I like it out there. I, I Honestly, I like the fog. I'm a big fog fan. I was very it's happy in San Francisco. Fantastic. It's very um, moody. And as a photographer, I imagine that that was, well, I mean, that's actually kind of where I cut my teeth learning a little bit of photography in the fog district, hiking those uh, stairways mm-hmm. between the different um, neighborhoods. Uh, I mean, there. there's like like a hundred or something of those stairwells. Yeah. You know, Ansel Adams lived out there. That's where he was born and grew up. I did not. Yeah, yeah. No way. Cool. He moved down to Carmel, but uh, yeah, he's from San Francisco. He broke his nose in the earthquake of 1904 (laughs) or something. That's why he has that kind of weird nose if you look at his pictures. No, I did not know that. I love the little trivia. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) Just for the fog people out on the the west side. So Um, I got to ask, Mm -hmm. I always kind of start with art. And um, what you make. So you're a photographer, you've got your own podcast, Mm -hmm. and you've got this new domain that you just mentioned, you appropriated Neo-Modern, which I love that name for a website, Mm -hmm. Neo-Modern. Neo meaning new, right? And then modern. So it's like new, new. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's a, I mean, it comes from- Shrimp, scampi. Shrimp, shrimp. I have this uh, jumbo (laughs) shrimp. It's not a, a, it's a- redundant right um right, right. But no jumbo shrimp would be an oxymoron right that's uh, an example of it i think shrimp scampi is shrimp shrimp some because scampi oh, yeah, is yeah. the word for shrimp so it's really you're people, saying i want people, shrimp shrimp that's what people say about the la brea tar pits which i believe is what? the la brea tar pits in los angeles la brea uh-huh. means the tar pit so it's sort of the tar pits tar pits which makes no sense <laughs> <laughs> just, well, well, you started this. I'm just I did. picking it up. We could go it. down a road. Well, that's what I do. I start random side uh, non sequiturs on this. Good. <laughs> um, but oh, so you had asked about neo modern. Um, no, yes. I remember, like three years ago, I start. I, I left my job at Adobe, and uh, I decided I was just going to be full time photographer. I was uh, brave man. of age. I had a great career and it's like, you know what? I spend my off times taking pictures. I'm just going to do this all the time and figure out by doing it, how to make a living doing it or, or something like that. Um, yeah. And I've been taking pictures and selling them like ad hoc for a few years, but I just was done, done with the technology business, the startup business that I'd been in for most of my career. And, mm. uh, and then I had an idea, you know, while I was doing it, what I, what I ran into was like, People would buy my pictures, and the hardest part of being a photographer was getting it matted and framed when they would buy it. And I would spend right. almost as much on that as as on the print. And right, and it was pissing me off. Like I can't believe how hard. Why is this so expensive, and why is this so difficult? And you know, combine that with um, uh, I have a large art collection that I manage, like thousands of mid-century modernist photographic prints ansel adams oh, really Weston. yeah i gotta you collected them or well i mean it, it was my or? family my family my dad and i did this and um when he passed away it fell to me full time to, to manage and run okay. it and um there's there are literally thousands of, of prints so i wasn't really sure fascinating like, what i should be doing but here's the thing no matter with all of those prints it didn't matter the size of the image or the shape of the image. They actually weren't 
in their museum framing that we had for them, the matting and framing, they were actually quantizing into a couple different sizes. There'd be like 16 by 20 or 20 by 24. Mm -hmm. be a, they wouldn't be every different size. They would actually be a set number of sizes. Mm -hmm. And I realized that custom framing is bullshit. Can I say that on, on your show? Yes, you can. But well, if you haven't heard our episode with Ashley Longshore, I don't think you can outdo her with swearing. Okay, I will but try. you can give it a try. I, you know I'll what? just put a Hope, disclaimer on the front. <laughs> eternal. Uh, so I had all these, I had all these, this information that said, you know, people think they want custom framing and it's very expensive to do. But what if we just did custom matting? What if we mm. could take any size picture, any shape picture, and just basically matted them as if you were at a museum and they go into the 20 by 24 frame and you just mat it yes. for that. And that way you can have a, a very small number of frames. You can custom cut the mats and mm -hmm. then people can get it very um, customized but affordably because you can do it at scale. And so we opened, so I opened this gallery on Union Street in San Francisco and people would walk in with their phones. Our it. staff were experts at Photoshop and they uh -huh. would sit with you for about 10, 15 minutes, fix up your picture, custom print it out like a museum print large uh -huh. then they would custom cut a mat and frame it and it was done in 30 minutes brilliant i well, love it almost brilliant it was a it was it was a pretty good thing and it was growing and i was trying to build the online side of it because the store was mm -hmm. was its own thing very exciting and then when covid hit i couldn't i just couldn't keep it up the rent was astronomical and i mm. just had to bail too much overhead it was too much overhead and i was bummed i'd been doing it for many years and i loved the business the, the community loved it it was sort of a hub for photographers in san francisco but I had this, you know, in the process of doing it, I created a podcast about photography and I mm -hmm. had a domain, Neomodern is the name of the business. And so mm -hmm. when I closed it down, I've shifted into education, teaching photography. I have a new curriculum for photographers that I think is better than anything that's been created. And, and so I just put it under the banner of Neomodern. And I want to hear about it. That's what I'm doing. So anyway, that's, <laughs> and the podcast, we still do it. It's called Everyday Photography Every Day. Mm -hmm. And uh, my my partner, Suzanne Fritz Hansen, she and I have been doing it for a couple of years. And she is fantastic. And we just talk about photography, not not technical stuff. It's uh, We talk to artists and people in the photography world just about everything but the technical part, you know, all the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I noticed I, I found you through I was um, doing a little digging about Maggie Taylor, who I love and have mm. been following mm. for years. And, you know, it's kind of one of these rabbit hole things. I just interviewed John Paul Caponegro. He grew up knowing Jerry Ulsman. He was at the table with Jerry Ulsman and met Ansel Adams. And, and, you know, Jerry Ulsman then was married to Maggie Taylor. And so I just went down this rabbit hole. Mm. And I Popped onto your website, this neo modern, and I saw that you're into photographic zen, um, mm. photographic haiku, and I'm big time into the zen of art. This idea that art can be a meditation. I mean, they've proven that um, zen tangling and that um, repetition of mark making can take you into the flow state quickly and easily. Um, and you know, the flow state is very similar to like what the athletes get into with the zone. So yeah. here I am finding somebody that's uh, exploring this side of that aspect of art as meditation in photography. And I, I certainly have found that I, I do a lot of, um, uh, what are called internal multiple exposures. You, you probably know the term, um, but I take, you know, 
two photographs on the same piece of film. Mm, cool. And and doing that, you know, looking for one piece and then looking for shape that matches the other would be very relaxing. Very <laughs> like like you come up out of it and you're like, oh, what? Like you're almost confused. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love a good, I mean, true of any art project where you just, yeah. like the best thing is when you look up and you realize it's three in the morning. It's like, wow, <laughs> that's crazy. That was irresponsible of me on a Wednesday to do that. But, <clears throat> but you do. And that's, I love it. that's great. You know, um, well, I love this. I, I got Tell me about your workshop have, a little. Bad news for you because that isn't oh. specifically what, the course is about. I mean, you, you oh. sort of have it uh, where most people who talk about Zen and photography are in fact talking about what you have asked about, um, about find, being present and finding that, that center and yes. um, slowing down. That is not what I teach. <laughs> I, wow, love that. Come on. I love that but I, you need to be a zen master to teach that and i'm not a zen master i'm a student i'm an eternal student yes. but aren't we all what i rec recognized was after 40 odd years of taking pictures that there i couldn't put my finger on what it was i did exactly that i liked about my photography other than to say that my parents um, urged me not to do it as a career they urged me to do it <laughs> as a as a passion as a hobby on the side whatever and very not responsible of them <laughs> it was very responsible and um wise because my first job was with george lucas at, at lucasfilm and i've worked at you know i was one of the early people at netflix and i was at adobe and i've had a a, a very creative uh, entrepreneurial really cool. career but i took pictures the whole time i've always been taking <clears> pictures so i'm i'm actually 40 years as a as an amateur 40, almost 50 <laughs> years as, as, the, as a person, as if you had a, a smartphone in your pocket and you pulled it out and you took a picture, that's what I was doing before it was easy to do. I just had a camera and there was no reason for it other than I was doing it for fun. And you start mm -hmm. to ask yourself the question, why am I taking pictures again? Like, what's the point of this? What was, and you, and, and you wonder like, what is worth taking a picture of? At some point you hit this reductio ad absurdum kind of, you take it to the extreme and it's like, if, if life is short why am i taking pictures of things and saving them and is that for me yeah. is that for other people is it for for recognition yeah. so the class came about because uh -huh. i recognize i've always loved haiku and i've often referred to my photography as haiku and i've some photographers do that but i started researching haiku uh, a few years back and what i learned was that the things i knew about it weren't like, entirely right and the more I learned about how great haiku masters work and what the art of haiku, I realized that you could almost take many of the words out of their descriptions and put in photography, and they were talking about my work. That was mm. exactly the way I thought about photography. And it kind of gave me this sort of philosophical underpinning to what I was doing that before was just sort of an idiosyncratic Thing I did. And so that got me into what, like, what is haiku? It's this poetry form. It's a mm -hmm. Zen art. What are the other Zen arts? And as I started looking at the, uh, a number of other Zen arts, like um, Kintsugi, which is um, fixing broken ceramics with gold, mm, um, or, so beautiful. or drawing the Enso, which I, mm -hmm. I know, you know, many people are into just drawing these these circles. It's a yeah, I've done it for three years. So, so all of those are Zen arts. Um, origami yeah. to some degree. Uh, Ikebana is the is mm. flower arranging, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and as I and dug bonsai. into bonsai, yeah, and bonsai, yes. 
So as I dug into each of these arts, and there ended up being six that I was particularly fascinated by, I just felt that they informed photography, that if you, you don't need to study Enso or study Ikebana to recognize what it is about, what they're doing, what it is about it that's special, and mm. that can inform your photography. So I would say I'm using Zen arts to make people better photographers, to have meaning in their photography, not using photography to achieve Zen goals of mindfulness. Okay, if, I like if, the distinction. If that happens, that's great. If you develop an art form, that's great. But this is this is a standalone thing. If you're a beginner, it helps in, inform how you start into photography. And if you're super mm -hmm. advanced, when I've talked to really advanced photographers, often the thing they're wrestling with is they don't know how to improve. They're already very good. They don't mm -hmm. know why they're doing it. They're getting bored. They're sort of plateauing out. And mm -hmm. having a, treating photography as the newest Zen art is the is a pure way to approach this. It's really nice. It it seems to address all that stuff, and I think it will make people better photographers. So that is what I'm teaching. Is the application? Oh, that sounds fascinating that. to yeah. me. I mean, I would be into that because I've been painting Enso for like three years and exploring you know, the combination of different modern um, mediums and drips and iridescence and so forth and so on. But I've always loved that Japanese aesthetic of simplicity or the idea that the negative space is just as important as the positive space. Yeah, you get that in um, Ikebana as well. You start to yeah. recognize those rules of photography, um, compositional rules, like the rule of thirds or leading mm. lines, things like that. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you. shapes, V-shapes. I cannot tell you how much that makes me crazy and I want to kill people with a fork. It's just, <laughs> it is it is so wrong-headed. And it's not that it doesn't have an element of truth. It wouldn't have persisted as long as it did if it wasn't a good Monday morning quarterback way to look at things. But it isn't what any photographer does. I've never, if you talk to professional photographers, they all say the same thing. Learn that rule and then you can throw it out. And you look at all these great <laughs> pictures and they say they don't, if you're advanced, you don't even follow that. That's wrong. That's a crappy rule that is like everybody who uses it, throw, who gets good, doesn't use it anymore. And right. I find that rules of Ikebana about the weight of emptiness and the, and the balance of lines and line and form and harmony of these elements. And a lot of the things that you care about as you do Ikebana are what you care about when you do photographic composition. You do it organically. The right, if, you, if I ask you to balance a, a, a ruler on your finger, you might put your finger at the six inch point on the ruler and it will balance and you'd say, that's how you balance it. But the rule isn't that you put your finger on the six inch point because if I give you a stick that's all gnarly, that isn't mm. gonna work. So it only works in a very unusual circumstance that that's how you'd tell someone to do it. But the truth is you learn to balance by feeling it. Tell me more about the, um, what did you call it? The balance of emptiness, the weight of emptiness. I haven't heard that term before. I want to know. Oh, well, you seem to uh, resonate with that. You recognized yourself in the end. So the power <laughs> of the space, people don't, if you, if you get too caught up in objects, you mm -hmm. miss that the a composition is not a composition of objects, but of basically of light and dark shapes and of form and emptiness and they all uh -huh. have their own kinds of weight to them and your job as an artist is always arranging those things in a frame for whatever purpose right mm -hmm. um so i i am a big um 
I'm a big fan of using the those arts to just reframe the way you think about certainly in our case photography. And I and I mm-hmm. and I yes, the, the if you didn't if the if emptiness didn't have weight, it would it's like um it's like uh, dark matter in space. Like you need <laughs> I, to have I you weight. Go there. I <laughs> you, do it. <laughs> you need to have weight to that stuff or all the math doesn't work. And so um, that's another reason why those compositional rules piss me off. They're just, I think <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't bash them so much if I didn't actually think they were hard, made it harder to learn photography, not easier. If I, if it really made it easier, then maybe it's an okay stepping stone, but I think that it gets in the way of how you need to think about stuff. And I have a, a proposal, which is what my classes are about, of how yeah. you can think about it so it is easier. You know, that's my. Oh, I want to hear it then. Yeah. So, what is your class called? You've got the neo modern um, website, right? Right. And I then was, I was teaching them just through my website um, last year, here and there, and the courses are now being offered by the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops. Um, okay. So the, so, the first one through Santa Fe is offered January 5th. And that this run, year? This year, yeah. Are you going through with it? With well, COVID and everything, you guys well, wear masks? No, no, no. It's not going to be in person yet. There's just no way um, they can do that. Um, it's online. Yeah, it's an online okay, class. Okay. So and people it, can sign up now and still join because there's still time. Oh, no, wait. This probably won't air until uh, February because the fourth season starts here in February. My apologies. Oh, oh the, well, first class is sold out. the first class is already sold out. But there's, oh. they're doing a, there's another one that's after that that I think will still be available potentially by the time this airs so um, oh, fantastic. check in with that um what's and, the website um the santa fe well if you go to the neomodern.com th- let me there'll, read it there'll be links to santa yes. fe from there yes it is santa fe workshops.com and neomodern.com right yes uh yeah Yep, I've got them pulled up. And we'll put links down below for everybody as well. So if you're interested in joining. Yeah. Well, very cool. So you are a photographer. You make art based on Zen and um, Zen practices. And, you know, we talk about in the podcast, I try and keep things organized by the acronym APPEALS. So we talk about art. Then we talk about products. Because really, in order to make more time to do more art, you have to have something that you can sell so that you can pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's always interesting to me to find out the different ways that different creatives do this. Everybody comes out of it from a different way. How do you, how do you make your photography into a product? Well, it's funny you say that. I have a, an unorthodox um, feeling about photographic product. And um, I think it's best described, I call it one print only. And mm. for my work, and I, it, this is just for me, but I, if other people did this, it would be, you know, maybe we have a movement. But I um, I only a movement. Ever, That's what we need, baby. I only I'm ever, all about the isms. <laughs> I only ever make a single print of a of a photographic image, ever. For real? Yeah. Not even another one with like say different values or dis- different compositional cropping. If or... it's meaningfully different, and that would have to be uh, that's a judgment you'd have to determine. But if okay. it's meaningfully different, I guess I wouldn't object. But generally speaking, of any particular image, there's only one original. There's one master. Mm. There's one print of that. The reasons for making photographic prints um, 
It used to be because you had to. You had to make a print to see it, and if you ever wanted to be seen or in a gallery or in a magazine, there would be additional prints, and they were all mm -hmm. over the place. But that isn't the case anymore. Your digital image can circulate widely. It can be all over people, or you can license it. You can do a million things to make money with that image. There's no reason to have more than one original, like not anymore. Um, it's kind of a, a, an epi phenomenon of an older era where you had to make galleries. You know, you, they want you know you want people to collect your work. I, I get it. Mm -hmm. a, there is that desire to sell more, and if you have a, a great image that lots of people want, I mean, come on, Ansel Adams at the end of his life was practically running off Moonrise Hernandez. You know, he was printing money. People were offering a lot of money and he would just make another one, you know. Uh, I don't want to do that. I think that we're in an era where there's so much photography and there's so much imagery and people can make it so easily that I would just assume that I will make one original. If someone owns that print, then that's who owns the print. And if someone else wants it, they need to talk to that person in a secondary market and I'm out of it. I make mm. the one that I put my heart into. It's the master. It's my best version of it. And that's it. If someone buys it, great. And I count on the fact that I'm prolific and I'm always mm -hmm. evolving, that if the picture you want isn't available, I have lots of other prints. But I'm mm. not going to just make another one of that and start you know, just meeting demand. And I understand that it's a, it's, a, it's a controversial position. If you were already successfully selling lots of prints, you would find that a, a ridiculous waste of money. But for most photographers, they're not selling a lot of prints. They're making their money through other methods, either if photography is a service or, you know, they're hired specifically for something or they're licensing content or there's business. But the, the physical print and the sale of that print, um, I find I just want to have one. So that's my, my soapbox about you selling know, prints. Ruben, I think that's fascinating because you're a photographer and photographers are always in this debate about limited edition mm -hmm. um, versus open editions. And I think you are the first photographer I've ever heard say that they want to pull an original. Now that's, I've actually interviewed Ashley Longshore and she only sells originals, but she mm -hmm. does painting, right? right? And she doesn't make any prints of her originals. And from her position, this makes her more valuable. It's um, a value proposition. Sure. Her originals are quite valuable. There's only one of them, although she does do series, you know, um, of sure. say Ruth Gaynor, um, you know, she'll do five, six, seven, eight of them or of, of, you know, whoever she's depicting, um, Audrey Hepburn or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she'll change them a little bit, but I mean, it really drives the prices up, but you're the first photographer well, that I've ever encountered. We commoditize our own work. I think that we are the problem. You know, there's always been a debate whether photography is a, some sort of mechanical reproduction. It's not like painting. And, mm -hmm. and the fact that we can make 10 identical copies is, I mean, it's great that we can do that. But the minute we do that, or even making, two, and it's a slippery slope, but so you make two, you make four, you have some sort of radical additioning, you're still running them off at some level. There's multiple copies of it. And I think mm -hmm. that's, the problem we are the ones who create this sort of sense that anything can be run off and if you if all photographers only ever made one print signed it that was the one then you know for me i consider the online use of images of my images advertisement for my print 
Mm. You know, I mean, you want people to see your pictures, mm. but I don't, yeah. but I, and is, as the picture people love the picture more and more and more, it drives up the price of the original. And I'm paying mm -hmm. attention to that. But for right now, I have a flat rate for the print for the originals. That's what they cost. And I, and I'm relatively unconcerned as long as I get attribution that, and they're not being used commercially. I love to see my images all over the place. You know, that's fascinating. And it helps your collector as well. Right. So it right. makes doing them the a value of the collector's work appreciate and it creates an asset for them. Yes. Think how cool it is when you see a picture online and feel like not just that I have one, but I have it. I have the one. Picture. I have the one. Interesting. And I mean, you know, when I have a picture, I mean, like I said, I have this large art collection. You can't tell when you look at a photograph whether the artist made one, and that's a weird one. You know, he just he made it one day, and that was the only time he ever printed it. It makes it very valuable. Mm -hmm. Or he, like Cartier-Bresson, you know, in the 70s, he was just running them all. You know, certain pictures he might have a 100 of. Uh, like mm -hmm. anybody in the planet who wants that print could get one. And I mm -hmm. kind of feel like, okay, for the classics in the day where people were silver printing and they're from the 1950s, I guess you can get away with that. There's still not that many of them. But today, when we can make them so easily and that we've lowered the bar, there's no dark room. I'm just printing on a some sort of high-quality inkjet printer. It's like I think the responsibility is on us to self-regulate our what we're doing. And so that's why I've adopted this kind of harsh position. You yeah. know, in a way, it also streamlines the process for you um, to make more work. Because if you have a very valuable piece and people want prints and prints and prints, do you spend all your time um, in the past? Well, appeasing or or um, producing, you know, becoming a manufacturer for the demand, or do you spend time creating new work? Right. So it frees you up, I guess, to create and print new work and, yes. and get Keep more growing. out there. Keep growing. Like it's all, hmm. and I, and honestly, you know, I, I wish I could just know that there was a huge market for all of my work, but the truth is that isn't the case. And, mm -hmm. and, and the less I care about it, the better my work gets. Like the minute I stop thinking about pandering a little bit to the audience, you know, oh, that's the, those are the kinds of pictures people have been buying. I guess I should start focusing on that stuff, the landscapes or the nudes or whatever the thing is. Mm -hmm. And I think, stop, getting, get them out of my head. I know that makes good business sense. I'm an <laughs> entrepreneur. I do business. But I don't know that I want that in my art. I want to create art to satisfy myself, my own curiosities, my own aesthetics, and mm. the more I settle back into the truest part of that, the, the satisfying myself, the work gets better. That is the stuff that ends up selling. <laughs> you know, it always surprises me that when I give up on what I thought was being smart business-wise, I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. And uh, giving up on the business stuff and just tr focusing on the art is the right direction. That's what I think. Well, you know, I think it's interesting because inevitably, I was talking about this with um, one of the guests, inevitably, it is the piece that I least expect somebody to like that they will like, that will resonate with them, whether it nope, be my art agent, yeah. <laughs> you know, he will always pick something that, you know, I, I think, oh, God, that is so messy. And he'll say it's painterly, <laughs> you know, or something yeah. like that. My sister would um, say, she'd say, uh, I think you're a good photographer, but I don't think you know which pictures of yours are the good ones. 
Do you think that's the case with all artists? Probably. I think it's very hard to know your own stuff. I mean, there's stuff that you feel strongly it articulates that thing you were trying to do, but you know, at the end of the day, it's interesting to see what other people think is your good stuff. And it's really yeah. not what, always what you think it is. You know? But I do think you have to be cognizant of trends and you do have to produce a lot of work. I mean, one of the things I hear you saying is that by only doing one, you can produce more, which I do think is one of the common themes. You know, I'm trying to find these common themes, these common threads that run through all creatives so that in all creative fields to help people understand what are the important aspects for making a living in creativity. And um, one of the common threads that I hear is this creation of a lot of work of creating over and over and over again, every day if possible. And certainly photography makes that so easy, especially now that we have iPhones and we have these really beautiful, competent, uh, high pixel cameras right in our pocket. You can pull them out and you can take, you know, 1500 pictures in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, creating a lot of work is what helps you find your artistic voice. And that seems to be one of the common threads is that you just need to create more and more and more and more and more and more. I mean, Picasso was so prolific, right? The and best I, artists are so I find that prolific. the most inspiring thing going to the Picasso Museum in Paris and you realize that the guy would make a picture on a on a bucket. He would just <laughs> You know, he would just draw or paint on real. Did he? Oh yeah, he would do on plates, and he would just paint on fabric, and he would just he had there was no rules, there's no limits, and he would do all kinds of stuff. He did it all the time. He might pay for a dinner at a restaurant by drawing a picture on a napkin and handing it to the owner. I mean, like he was just <laughs> prolific. There's a a, photo- a a painter who I love in L.A. named Gronk. And uh, what a cool name! Super cool, super cool guy. And I—you'll have to introduce me. Oh, he's—he's great. He's great. Um, And that's (laughs) what he does. Like I—I found a picture of his that I bought at a flea market or something, and and I've given it to the San Jose Museum of Modern Art. Um, And it was—I asked him about it, and he was like, "Oh, I think I paid my rent with that one year." You know, he just was like, I can't remember, but like, that's how you, if that's what you got when you're an artist. And I love that. So, um, you know, there's this feeling that the hardest thing in art sometimes is when you paint something, you make a creation, you're an architect, you build a building, whatever the thing is, Uh and then you give it away or you sell it. And and it's not a sale. It's more like an adoption. It's like someone is taking over the ownership and the care and loving and feeding of this thing. And for me, making multiple prints is antithetical to that. Like, I want to have that same feeling a painter has, which is a sadness when a picture sells. And photographers don't usually feel that way. It's like, oh, let's make another one, you know? The sense Mm. that that I created it with my own hands and then someone took it away from me. You know, know, that's strange, Ruben, because you've hit on something that, you know, I went to photography because I couldn't get... I couldn't give up the originals, the paintings and the mixed media work that I did. I couldn't part without without mm. pain. Well, that's and your for work me, then, huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's still all in the closet. I've got archives and archives. Um, but I went to photography as a way to be able to let go of it, to separate from it, to because it was reproductions. And I find it fascinating 
that you want that experience of, of giving up that baby of, you know, I, I always worry, is somebody going to throw it away? Are they going to burn they it? Might, I don't know. That, but you're, that, that's what every artist feels. And for photographers not to feel it is to exclude themselves from this, this uh, family of creators who experience that. I, I think that it's, yeah. it's part of the creative process to create. Huh. It, it's almost the, the Buddhist notion of the sand mandalas. You know, you create them and mm. they're ephemeral. They just go away. To cling to it as if it has permanence, I think is the wrong avenue here. I think it's more, it's better to think of it like a, an animal that you're letting go because you love it. If you love something, set it free. Otherwise, mm. you end up with all your pictures in your own closet and then you die. And that's awesome, mm. right. You don't want that. You'd rather have them all be out there. <laughs> oh, I'm on the closet route, man. <laughs> oh, let, it go. let them go. Set them free. You love them. Oh, you thank love you. Them. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Are you enjoying the artist appeals? I know I love recording it. This is just a quick break to encourage you to get your free download of the top four things that you can do to make money with your art at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com. So get your free download at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com today. And now back to your regular program. Well, you, I love that we can talk a little bit about Buddhist and Zen and stuff. I mean, isn't the tenant, um, let, let me see here, uh, desire is the root of all suffering? Isn't that one of the main tenets of, um, of the idea of letting go is that desire this mm. need to cling mm. creates suffering yeah i thought um, it was yoda who said that but yeah it could be a, <laughs> it could be a buddhist thing too um, and this is the way this is the way <laughs> I, but I, I i think that's right and the sooner once you go through a couple near-death experiences and some tragedies in your life you get a few miles behind you um you, you recognize the degree that uh, of our, our, our impermanence, our transience. And, mm -hmm. and I have to be honest, you know, when my father died um, and mm -hmm. I took over, you know, Sorry. Uh, not your fault, I think. <laughs> I'm not holding you responsible. I have not uh, intentionally killed anybody okay, good. that I know of. Okay, we will have a conversation about this if I find otherwise. <laughs> However, um, I've spent a number of years since his passing sort of dealing with his stuff and unlike mm. you know and it's not bad stuff that's the thing it's great stuff he was a pack rat of great stuff that's why i have this giant art collection that i manage and he had lots of interesting things but like do you want to spend your life managing stuff it and mm. so suddenly i as i'm managing his stuff as his child I'm thinking of my own stuff. Like, what do I really need? What do I want to subject my children to dealing with? Like, what is important? And I realized that certainly for my photographs, boy, I don't want to die with any of those in, at home. I want them to all be in people's homes. I want them all disseminated and free out there. And they have to be prints. Like, you know, I also believe strongly that it's not photography if you don't print it. It is literally uh. not photography if you don't print it you can i mean it's great it's a beautiful uh -huh. thing it's a photographic art but if you do not make a physical print there's a number of reasons that i'm not going to go into why i don't think you hit that bar of making a, a photograph as an object it's that yeah even if you're making a bunch of them you got to make got to stick your stake in the ground somewhere and say this is the way it should, that thing is supposed to look this is a good enough one to merit being printed 
and this is how you're, you need to see it. That area is dark and this area is light and it's this shape. You decide that stuff and to abdicate that responsibility is missing the whole point of being a creator. I think that is well said. You know, you worked for all these virtual, you know, Lucasfilms, Netflix, Adobe, and my master's is actually in computer animation, um, 3D, and I couldn't stand it after spending two years doing a thesis project. You know, a two-minute animation took me, you know, a year and a half, two years to put together with, you know, uh, working with other people (laughs) and blah, blah, blah. And then somebody would watch it and they'd be like, Oh, that was, that was sweet. That was great. Okay. What's next? You know, and it's dated by the time you've released it. So if it's virtual, is it real? I've always wondered that if it only exists in the digital ones and zeros realms, does it really exist at all? Well, I mean, you, I won't argue whether it exists or not, but I would say that the printing is a, is a piece of work. And while it is way easier today to make a print than it ever used to be, I mean, I've sat there, I've got hundreds of thousands of pictures in my, in, in Lightroom on my computer. Mm-hmm. I've got a mm-hmm. professional printer. I've got money. I can print anything I want. And when I go sit down to print something, I look at it and I think, mm, nah, that doesn't, that just doesn't quite, it's not quite there. I don't want to print that. I am vetting <laughs> at that last instant when just because I have to spend $10 more on ink and paper, I'm looking at it a little harsher and I think mm-hmm. it doesn't make the cut. That is an important line for an artist to set. This isn't mm-hmm. quite good enough to make it to the print form. And, mm-hmm. uh, and everything about photography is about editing. Like we see the world in 360 degrees across, uh, you know, with a continuum of time. A photograph is a sampling of a very small piece of time in a very small part of space. And we're choosing to keep that. We're saving that moment in time in the, that vantage that millisecond. Point. That that, but we're making, we're extending it. We're, it's like we're we're uh, rendering it. You know, we're expanding mm-hmm. what was only a fraction of a second into ten minutes of staring at that moment. Like, mm. what demands to be stared at longer than you would normally look at that thing? Oh, that- you just reminded me of a critique I had um, with a really really strong photographer, uh, Laura Jean. Anyways, she said, why are you asking someone to look at this photograph? Why are you taking time out of their day? Yes. Great. Great. I was like, ooh. That's right. If you're going to stick a moment in front of me, make it worth my time. Yeah. Because there's so many moments that we're demanding, people are demanding we look at now. We're overwhelmed by visuals. I got to know, it's been coming back to me over and over again as we're talking about printing and presenting work. Um, What do you do with your test prints? So to pull a print, I know that John Paul will run, you know, dozens of prints to get that final print. What do you do with the sample prints or is the, the one the one? No, because it takes work to get to the one. Um, yes. The one is is the. So what do you do with your proofs? Go to Burning Man I, and burn them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to go to Burning Man to do it. I have all of the technology available to me right here, called a razor blade. I just cut them up, <laughs> and that's all you got. Oh, do. really? Yeah, you just get rid of them. I mean, uh, you stare at it and you ask yourself. I mean, and this is the question I ask myself: Would I be embarrassed if someone owned this? 
Like, is it not as good mm -hmm. as it could be? That's a little too dark. That's a little too something. I, I can make that better. And then I do make it better. Then I, and my first instinct is, God, I hate to waste this. It's a beautiful, yeah. it's still pretty good. But I go back to this place that says, well, if there's only going to be one original, I don't want any of the kind of flawed ones out there. So it's easy to get rid of them. Oh my God, you kill your babies. I you do. you throw funny. them off the cliff if they're not perfect. I, I do, <laughs> but that's what it takes when you're having so many babies. When it's so easy to have children, I think you need to be discerning. <laughs> Back when it was a lot harder, then you know maybe you keep them around, but yeah. Hey, the first rule of photography, the first rule of writing is that you have to kill your babies. You, It's never, you know, it's not about getting rid of bad things usually. It's about getting rid of good things to make the remaining things better. And Who that, said that? I know what you're talking about. Where does that come from? Well, that particular lesson came to me from an editor, a film editor, when I was in, making movies, uh, Gabriella Cristiani, who uh, mm. edit, edited The Last Emperor and, mm. and other films. I worked with her on The Sheltering Sky. And she was the person who got me to understand there's that sense when you're editing things, whether it's text mm -hmm. or photos, that you're getting rid of bad stuff. Like, clear, mm -hmm. like And I would call that culling. It's yes. not really editing. You're culling out the, the wheat from the chaff, right? You're getting, and mm -hmm. now it's a smaller subset. That's just another version of what you did when you took the picture in the first place, which is culling from all of the experiences I have down to the ones that I'm taking a picture of. Now I'm culling through all the pictures I have down to the ones that are worth saving. And then I cull through all those to go through the ones that are worth printing. That's the artistic process. So, mm. um, yeah, Gabriella. So well defined. Yeah, like so it. Gabriella used to say that, that like there's this feeling that editing is throwing out bad things, but that's too easy. If it's bad, of course you throw it out. The hard part is that, you, that you're throwing out good things. Mm. Things that don't make the cut. Mm. So we've talked about art. We've talked about product. We've kind of talked about presentation because you talked about uh, the matting and the framing. Um we always go next into E for educate. And I, I don't mean this as an educating yourself, although it can be that. But how do you educate your audience, your customers, your collectors as to the value of your work and to the story behind your work? That's a tough one. I think, you can, I mean, I try really hard not to make that my work. Um, okay. I think that that's why I don't sell more. Like, I think that if I'm trying to, if I was really trying to make a living from my photography, I would have to, it's, it's like they say, if you're a, a great baker, you make an amazing pie and you love making this pie, you're so good at it. And then at some point you have to open a pie shop because everyone wants it. And, and then one day you're sitting there hiring people and doing the accounting and marketing. And you're thinking, I just like making pies. And here I am running a thing. I feel like that happens with photography. You you love taking pictures. You're good at it. People like it. And somehow you move up to a point that if you're really going to make money doing this, you have to turn it into a business. And you might like the business part, but the thing I mostly like is the photography part. And I don't not I can't I can't go out and approach galleries all the time. I'm tired of marketing myself. It's just it feels unsavory, and I'm and I'm just fatigued mm. at this point in my life. And and again, the best things happen when I stop caring and I just focus on mm. my own art and not worry about what its value is and whether people know mm -hmm. about it. I'm just going to create the best body of work I can in my lifetime before I'm dead and let other people sort it out. You know, <laughs> that's it's just it's mostly fatigue. I think at, at uh, I'm 57 and I think at this point I just don't want to 
turn my photography into into too much of a business. The the printing and framing, yeah, the framing was a business, and that was a startup company, but that wasn't a photographic business. I was just evangelizing people loving their own pictures enough that they would print them and frame them, which they weren't doing that much. Well, I think that's a brilliant business idea. But what, you know, I think it's interesting that you say you're not educating when people, when, you know, the the beginning of this, we talked about uh, your new online course where you're educating people. And I have found that that's one of the common threads of successful creatives is that they share, they educate in one manner or another, whether that be through workshops, whether that be through books, whether that be through online courses, it seems to be a common thread. I think that's right, but I'm not educating with an objective to sell my work. I'm not doing it to educate about my work. Oh, no, no, I'm just educating. I don't mean it like that. Oh, oh, it's yeah, not well, that base. I, I love teaching people what I have figured out, you know, and if it's useful to them, that's great. And you know, I think I've spent my whole life um, educating. I've written, you know, maybe 13 books over the past many years. And That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I like, so cool. I like educating. I like um, trying to explain complicated things. The metric, of course, is if I can explain it to my mom, then I've made it simple enough. Uh, so I like taking complicated things and trying to make them understandable. Um, I agree. So that's, yeah, I think that the educational component... It's great. I mean, that's the only way you grow. And I think that um, teaching people is the way you figure out what you don't know and what you really believe. There's no better way to figure it out than to stand up in front of a group and try to explain something. And then you're like, okay, I guess I don't really know what I think about this. So yeah, usually I'll teach when I write a book, it's not because I'm an expert, but it's because I have lots of questions and it needs to be a book on a topic and I'm not getting the answers. And so I have to, you know, damn it, I got to write it myself. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. No, well said. That is it. That is it there in a nutshell. I mean, (laughs) that's this whole podcast. Good. It is. It's like, it's, to figure out, to answer your own questions, you do it. And that's why your podcast is, is good. You know, it's that you, oh, well, thank you. you're doing it from, a, <laughs> you're doing it from a genuine place. You're doing it from a place where you have questions. You want to talk to people. You, you know, if you were doing it with a sense of an agenda, like I need to get people to buy that soap, it wouldn't be as good. I think, you know, I certainly don't have an agenda. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's fun. I want answers. You can know <laughs> the answers. truth. I want answers too. I'm not sure we're going to get answers, but we have lots of good questions. So. Yes, we do. So amplifying, how do you automate or, you know, amplify means to scale, to get bigger, but how do you, um, you know, you talked about stepping away from a very busy what sounds like a very busy career because, you know, these type of high performance companies probably demand a lot. And you stepped away from that for photography and to make your own work. And you say you've got thousands of um, images, hundreds of thousands of images in Lightroom. I mean, I get that. I think I'm up to like 80,000 and I've been trying to call down. I think I managed to get down to like 60,000 the other day, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's like, it's so time consuming, right? right. So Take how do you, pictures. <laughs> I'm not oh, that's not going to happen. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not actually being facetious. I think that people have these cameras and so they're taking the word snapshot came about because that's the word of shooting a gun without aiming. That's what, how that, that oh. term came about. And I feel like people take pictures 
sort of indiscriminately. They're not really mm-hmm. caring a lot about it. They might take a picture. So that we end up, and even professionals, they, they're worse. They'll shoot hundreds of pictures of something just trying oh, to get, I know. and then they spend all day in Lightroom or Photoshop, like trying to discern what, whether this one's a little better than that one. Is that a little better than, and I don't, uh, I like it on film. You know, you shoot, you, you, you see the picture, you take a couple maybe to see if you got it and then you move on again. It's this idea of culling of, of, you know, the word that I like to use, by the way, is synecdoche. Have you ever heard the word mm. synecdoche? It's a, no, Greek, it's a word from Greek poetry. And mm. it's when the part of, it's a, when the word is a part of something and it is representing something much, much larger. So if you synecdoche. say synecdoche, S-Y-N-E-C-H-D-O-C, I'm not, I'd have to write it down. Um, <laughs> but, but it's, you know, it's a poetic struck, uh, structure thing that they did but i think that the a part representing the whole is the very nature of photography i don't need to take a picture of everybody in a crowd to get a sense that that's a crowd i don't need to if i'm taking a picture of you i don't need to take a a wide shot head to toe fully lit to say that's her i can take a picture of your hand i can take a picture of your eye like Mm. that's synecdoche i'm taking a small part of something and i'm using it to represent a larger thing and I can mm. do it in time. I don't have to take a million pictures of my vacation. I might take one of the beach and suddenly that mm. represents all the pictures of that week. So mm. I think embracing this idea of synecdoche is, is key to understanding photography. And I think that when you take lots of pictures, you're, you know, you then just are kicking it down the road that I now have to do the culling on the computer instead of in the real world. And I don't know that that's the part I like about it. So I do yeah. my synecdoche in, in the real world. I take fewer pictures than most professionally photographers and, and I only edit briefly and then I'm done. And I, I like that. You know, we hear about being in the moment and um, I think sometimes as photographers and as artists, we can get so caught up in the creation and the capturing of the moment that we're not in the moment. And oh, it's yeah. a balancing, it's a, it's a fine razor point that we're balancing on. Agree. It, you're totally not in the moment when you're taking, I mean, it's a, it is a funny dynamic. You're both present and not present. I, I use a camera to hide. Like if I'm mm. in social situations, I'm modulating my discomfort in a social situation by pulling the camera out. You know how war photographers are frequently getting gunned down because they stand up in the middle of a firefight, somehow feeling impervious to the war going on around them. <laughs> But that's how we all are. You get behind a camera and you're not really there entirely. You're both there paying attention and you're there very present, but you're invisible and you're not fully experiencing the thing. It's through the lens. And I make it a point to, for me personally, to take pictures and then stop taking pictures. Like I don't take it all. The, I don't walk around with the camera constantly. I On vacations, there might be a day that I bring my camera out, not constantly with taking pictures of everything. I like that idea. You know, we just went to the um, Heritage War Museum in Carlisle today and walked around. They have this display of all these military vehicles. And I was reading the placards. And I like to pick out the little art history tidbits. Mm -hmm. And there was one about um, this photographer that went to D-Day and was on the beach. And he managed to shoot like two or three rolls of film on the beach 
Um, no, he made it out. He survived. Mm. Brought the film back. And would you believe the developer um, dried out the film too fast and ruined almost all of it? And only 10 photographs, 10 or 11 photographs are left from that. That's um, heart crushing. Oh, I know. Right. But <laughs> does that not make, isn't that what we're talking about? It was unintentionally cold. Mm-hmm. Um he must have felt impervious or, you know, maybe this camera scared. was like a mythical box. scared shitless. I don't know if there's <laughs> any way to get through that, that, you know, from what I've seen of the movies of that beach landing. I don't, I can't yeah. imagine just having a camera out there. <laughs> right. I have seen but some pictures of you there. Yeah. Oh yeah. So there's only a couple of his left. And I so was you're like, right. Wow. You're right. The natural and life and history are natural colors. There might be a hundred mm. pictures in your collection, but the house burns down and only three are left and you didn't pick the three, but those are the three that are left. And those are the ones that move through time, you know, right, and right. you don't get to decide all that. So you just make, do the best work you can. And I think it's best not to worry about it so much. I don't know that we control it. There's so much, luck involved with success anyway it's not about talent it's about Mm. uh, you know the same with startup companies you know you can have a great idea a great business everything can be good people a lot of money and it fails why did it fail well there's a million reasons but i Mm -hmm. think people don't recognize the degree that luck plays a role and um I think that that's too I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit on the luck thing i personally think that it's persistence I think it's doggondedness, persistence, and just being out there over and over again. As part of persistence, I'm going to say follow up, follow up, follow up. Because I have had students that maybe weren't the best artists, but they were persistent. And they got out there and they networked and just over and over again, they followed up, followed up, followed up. They were professional. You know, they showed up. They did the work. They were easy to work with they had a smile they had a laugh um and they just showed up showed up and showed up again and again and again you've got a survivorship bias because there's lots of people who did everything (laughs) no no no. listen there's lots of people who've done everything you just described and it didn't work it isn't Mm. enough it's not enough to be persistent I'm, i'm not suggesting that luck means that you just rest sit back and you hope someone discovers you that's not what i mean i mean that no matter how much work you do in every and push on every lever, you're still you have to account for the fact that you still don't control all the variables, and it is mm. whether you succeed or fail is not just because you didn't try hard enough. You might have done everything possible, and it just didn't take. It is a, there's always an element of luck in there, and no matter how deserving you are, how hard you try, I don't know that you completely control that. Now, the more work you do, of course, the more you put things in your in your column, right? Um, I used to think of it like roulette, like there's 42 spots on the roulette wheel. But every time if I have a good, a good, uh, I work really hard, I can cover up a couple spots with tape so the ball doesn't go there. And if I have a, a gallery show, I can cover up a bunch more spots. So at the end of the day, instead of being one in 42, it's one in 10 when I roll it. It's still mm-hmm. chance whether I get it. I've just moved the odds in my favor, but I didn't, mm. but I can't make it happen. I can just keep pushing things to increase my odds. That's about the best I can say it. Well, now you're talking about probability. Well, yeah, it, there's, there's always chance, a chance involved. Someone mm. happens to see your work and they're happy to be connected with the right person or they, they're ha- someone canceled at the last minute and they were just looking and they ran into you. And yes, if you hadn't put yourself out there, it wouldn't have 
been a possibility, but it still was counting on other events that you did not control that make it possible for you that person to succeed and this other person not to. Well, I think it's interesting. So what we're really talking about is a combination of 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 both things, you know, this probability increasing the probability chances of success by you know, negotiating the factors. Yes. Um, changing the variables, you know, maybe living in a bigger city where you're exposed to more people or sure. going and networking more. But or... it's not the only way, you know, yeah. because you, you yeah. live in a small town, it still might work. It's just different. You have different things in your favor and against you, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. But what and do I, I know? Like... I'm not making a living from selling my art. It's like, don't listen to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, but I'm a career business person. I just recognize that making my photography, my career of business isn't a smart one. Like I have to do that because I love it and I would do it anyway. As you yeah. Know. And the other businesses were business businesses where I could actually control more of it and it was a little less personal and, and you know, Netflix and, and Adobe and these businesses are, you know, they have ways that they work and it, and I love startup companies. I love creative business and being yeah. creative means you can apply, you're breaking rules all the time. That's, I was hired at Netflix because I was one of those weird people who was creative, not. For, oh yeah. Yeah. They called it a They told you that? Girl. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who hired me said, uh, he said that the position that he was filling, um, there were it's traditionally an MBA kind of position. That's what product mm -hmm. managers are, the directors of product. Um, but he felt like the more you do of what you've done, the more you'll have of what you've got. And they were trying to, you know, Netflix was young and we were trying to figure out how to get out of the where we were, beating Blockbuster or not. And mm -hmm. so he brought in a couple people into the product management role who were not MBAs. We had business experience, but we were mm -hmm. different. We were unlike the others, he, and the term he used was wild duck. And what it was, we were just creative people. You know, we didn't know all the what? rules. So we didn't know what rules we were breaking. And we were just businessy smart. And, and uh, you know, I left after three years. But the other guy who came on as a wild duck is practically running the company. So, you know. That's cool. Yeah. One of these things is not <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's really cool. I think that's really interesting. Um, licensing and contracts. So you have a different take on your prints. How do you feel about licensing and contracts? And, you know, this is a topic I like to hit on with the podcast because, well, we try and cover all the different creative fields. And so sometimes people say, no, I've never licensed anything, but they have some really valuable information on not being intimidated by contracts and things to look for. And other people have been on and talked about the importance and the incredible um, revenue that can be generated through licensing. Do you have any thoughts on um, licensing and contracts, especially since you're a photographer and you're taking this very different position about replication of your images yes um i'm not uh, because of my uh, advanced age <laughs> and uh, and relative success i don't feel a, a lot of pressure to get images licensed i can kind of uh -huh. take the high road that um, my only interest is in creating the work and selling the prints and most of its use online i hope is just you know, like I said, sort of advertising for for the picture, 
you know, if you see it out there and you like it, then you might want to own it. So, mm-hmm. so I don't spend a lot of time on that. I've, I have, um, by being in business, I've been involved with lots of business deals and contract deals and intellectual property mm-hmm. deals and stuff like that. But I would yeah. not say that I know anything in particular about the licensing space of photography. And um, again, I just choose not to make that the thrust of my work. I feel like it would derail me a little bit. Uh, but maybe mm-hmm. that's the way I got, but, but ask me in a year, like when I've really been <laughs> doing this for a, a lot longer, I might start you know, doing more licensing deals. I, it doesn't run antithetical to the, the printing. So since I am so focused on the, the sale of an original print, I'm open to anything that happens online, whether it's licensed or not, you know, just getting it out there. So interesting uh, that yeah. that is very interesting in a very different position um because you only make one print you're so much more laissez-faire shall i say yeah, about yeah. images yeah. i know so many artists um i'm part of a group of art licensing um ladies and and gentlemen too um yeah. art biz jam and you know art agents and 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 they focus a lot more on product. So watercolors and thematic work that can be very traditional and very uh, holiday based or, or seasonal based or, you know, those types of things. And there's a lot of talk about copyright infringement and about people stealing artwork and printing it poorly in China. All the more uh, reason to only have one master print, because if there's anything mm -hmm. else, if someone sees your picture online and prints it themselves, we know that that's not a print. It's not signed. It's not the original. We know who has the original. There's no question that those are not valuable in that sense. Mm. They're not the original. So that's another reason to support this sort of being very draconian about zero tolerance of other prints. <laughs> you know? Ruben, now I got a question though. That just made me think of something. So in the old days with a print, they would destroy the negative like they'd write a big fat x over it right once the edition was done mm -hmm. um but you have a digital version what do you do with your digital file to ensure that there's never any other prints well i mean i i allow myself the opportunity to revisit it at some future date I, you know over time i might reinterpret that image do you put it in a folder and no, say this has no. been printed? Like no, how do I know you organize it? I have a I have a database of all the prints that I've sold and which images are in them, so I wouldn't okay. accidentally make another one. Um, I serialize all my prints. There, I number them on the back, so okay. I'm on like 527. So when I ever okay. make a print, I put a number on it. I know what that print is, and it's in a thing. And then if it sells, then I know who has it. And um, Okay, that's yeah. so easy. I it's, like the simplicity of that. So you have a spreadsheet. Yeah, a big one. Print now. one is print one. Print two is print two. All the way up to five hundred. They've got a title. Yeah, they've got a file name. I they've know got what the paper owner. I used. I know this process. I have any information. And if for some reason I reprint it, it's because I'm revisiting it. It's like you know what? I'm doing all my stuff darker now, and I think this is a moodier version. So it's incredibly clear. It's not the other one. It's like it's a totally different. I like it tiny. I'm going to make mm. it, and so. I don't want there to be question of a provenance of the image. I don't want to wonder, is that the original? Is that you got to know anything about it? It's like, no, like a painting. That's either it or that's not it. Interesting. And then um, you said that that simplifies your pricing as well. Yeah, I charge the same. Right now, I basically charge the same price for all the prints. Interesting. 
I like the simplicity of that. Yeah, that's simplicity is key. You know, it's like it's your life. You can make your life crazy with managing like stuff. Haiku. Yeah, like haiku. <laughs> right. Finally, S for success. So <laughs> how do you measure success and how do you celebrate your successes? Well, I I measure success just by my stress level being nice and low and that I'm liking the work I'm doing. Like I basically go back through my work all the time, the digital mm -hmm. files and the physical prints. And am I still happy? Do I feel like I'm growing? Is there evolution? Do I look, and the key is that when I look back at something from years ago, is it embarrassing? Like, oh God, I'm so <laughs> much, I can't believe I thought that was so good and now I'm so much better. So that's a nice, it's a mixed feeling. I'm glad I didn't sell that one. I can't believe I was talking about that so often when it's so shitty. Um, so that's the- I know that feeling. <laughs> so I like, it's important to have time <clears throat> and distance to make that judgment. And um, I celebrate success simply by being appreciative all the time of my sort of good fortune and that I have the opportunity to work this way. And, um, you know, I just, I take a lot of time to be present with that that I'm a, mm. a lucky person on earth right now. And, um, you know, it's hard to be upset about things when, when you're that person, things are going mm. well. So I like it. Yeah. Cool. I like it. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on. This I, has been fantastic. Great to meet you. And, uh, honestly, all I know about, uh, licensing, I learned on the last episode of your podcast. So, you know, <laughs> for real well i was listening i wanted to see what your show was like and i listened to it i was like oh that's cool oh, i didn't know which that. one did you listen to the, the guy who was the licensing pioneer uh well we're we're going into season four oh, were you talking about and, michael woodward yeah i think so it was the end of the last season it was probably two episodes ago <laughs> uh, very cool very cool this All is right, great well, thank you it has it has thank you do you want to learn how to make money with your art but you're a little bit pressed for time and you don't have time to listen to every single episode? Well, we've made a free download for you at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com. You can get your free download and it includes the top four things you need to do today to start making money with your art. So if you want to learn how to make money with your art but you're pressed for time, get the free download over at how to make money with your art.com all one word no spaces all spelled out that's how to make money with your art.com get your free download now